Hey y'all, my name is Eric. I'm the lead pastor at Emmanuel and Hookset. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast. Our goal is to be a blessing to everyone who listens as you continue on your journey of faith. It's also our hope that you'll be encouraged to find a church to belong to so you can plug into that congregation and bless others with the gifts and experiences that God has entrusted you with. Well, I hope this podcast is a blessing to you and encourages you to get out there and be the blessing. God bless. Uh, we're talking about repentance and restoration. And repentance to some people, and, uh, and certainly um, it should be a heavy word, but to some people it's, a, it's, it's far more scary than it should be. Repentance is good news. I mean, repentance means that God has given you a chance to turn to Him. All through the Old Testament, you, how many of you guys uh, would be interested in prophecy? So oh, prophecy is fascinating. Well, often in the Old Testament, the prophets were simply prophesying to the nation of Israel that God said, if you did this, you would receive this chastisement. You would receive this punishment. And you've been doing this for a while now. And so God has called me as his prophet to come to you and say, God told you that if you did this, you're going to go into captivity. And so he's offering you a chance because he loves you and he wants to pour mercy and grace out on you to repent. And if you repent, you won't have to go through that. That was a lot of prophecy in the Old Testament. I mean, we love Isaiah prophesying about the coming of Christ, but a lot of the prophecy in the Old Testament was basically just saying, hey, this is what God said, this is what you're doing, and this is what you need to do. Come back to God. Come back and He'll forgive you. Come back, He'll give grace to you. In fact, He did that among the Gentile, what we call the Gentile nations. He didn't just do that for Israel. He did that for a city called Nineveh. How many of you know the, this Bible uh, account of this man named Jonah, who was a prophet of God? We hear Jonah in the belly of the whale, right? Three days and got vomited up on the, on the coast. And um, it's a great story. I, you know, sometimes I think we put things on the walls of our nurseries that maybe aren't the best. Like, let's put Noah's Ark on the wall of a child's nursery, right? Because look at the, look at the wonderful animals. They're so beautiful. Uh, Noah's Ark is all about like the whole world was dead except for eight. Like God judged the entire world, flooded it. Everyone died. You could see these people finally struggling toward the ark as the water is rising and their hands are coming up out of the water and it's too late and God had shut the door so that Noah could not even open it to rescue people. There was no throwing a rope over the side of the boat. Judgment had come. Those people had been called, by the way, to repent. And if they were repent, they would be saved. Repentance is a, it's a scary word because it, it means we're, we're out of alignment with God. We're not walking with God. We're not aligned with His character, with His nature, with His will. That's scary. But it's also good news because he's telling us there's a way back. There's a way to come back. What a great song we just worshiped with one day, glorious day. God's calling us back to himself. And so that's why it is a heavy word. It can be scary. But if you're being called to repentance, that's good news. God's giving you a chance. Turn around, run to Jesus, and then you, then you receive this wonderful gift of restoration. Last week we talked about the powerful path of repentance, the powerful path of repentance, and, and we, read through, we read through Psalm 51, and I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to read that on your own, but here were some of the points that we made last week that uh, the path of repentance requires us to recognize that there is a problem with our heart. Right? The, the path of repentance requires us to recognize there's a problem. That's what the prophets of the Old Testament were doing. Hey, guys, there's a problem. You have a problem. 
is revealed in your works. It's revealed in what you're doing. It's revealed in your attitude. And sometimes when you come to church and, and the pastor is preaching or one of our other preachers are preaching, God is speaking to your heart saying, hey, you got a problem. If you don't recognize you have a problem, you're not going to repent. You're not going to turn around. You're, going to, you're not going to receive restoration. Um, we must recognize we have a problem. We must recognize that the problem is with our heart and with our will, right? With the emotional seat of our lives and with the intellectual seat of our lives. We have a problem with the heart and the will. And the psalmist said, create in me a clean heart. Sin corrupts our hearts. Peter says that it, that it wars against our souls. When we have sin in our lives that is, that is undealt with, it's warring against who you're supposed to be. Anyone look in the mirror and just think, what's wrong with me? Why did I do that? Why did I say that to, to my sister, to my mother, to my brother, to my wife, to my husband? Why, why did I do that? Sin is warring against who you're supposed to be. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. And so this psalmist, he, he understood that he needed a, a cleansing of his heart. He understood that he needed a willing spirit. So he prayed, God, give me a willing spirit to follow you. You're going to have temptation. We're going to have temptation in our lives. We're going to want to do things our way, right? It's not even just necessarily outright sin, like I'm going to go kill somebody. Sometimes sin in the lives of other people is not sin in our lives because it revolves around the will of God for us. So if God calls you to be a pastor, calls you to come uh, to, to be a, a preacher, and you say no, that's sin for you. But is it sin for someone who's not called a pastor? Of course not. Of course not. So it's... It's sometimes, it's a, it's a, well, it's a very personal thing. There are outright sins. The Ten Commandments lay them out pretty clearly. The, the Apostle John lays it out like this. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, and the pride of life. Those are the three categories of sin. And then there is the will of God and being in line with it. And so this psalmist, he said, give me a willing spirit. He recognized the problem with the will. Lord, I, I need my will changed. I am self-willed. It's all about me. I want to do what I want to do. And folks, that's, that's, a, that's a problem from the, the pastor to the parishioners, right? <laughs> no one is exempt from falling into that sin of being self-willed. In fact, in fact, when choosing a pastor, Paul warns Timothy that when you're looking out for the, the lead pastor of your church, right, that, that uh, you should choose someone who is not self-willed. Someone who is, would, will dig in stubbornly with God's will and into God's word, but that it's not his way or the highway. It's God's way or the highway, right? Now, the characteristics of a, of a pastor should be the characteristics of every believer, what he's really showing us is this is what mature faith looks like. He recognized the need for the Holy Spirit. He recognized his need for renewal. Who didn't put their phone on do not disturb? That sounded like an iPhone too. How do you silence your watch? Is it an Apple watch? Pull up from the bottom. And you see the little moon? You hit that? You're welcome. It, did you ask how to turn it back on? Yeah, after the service, click that same button. And on your iPhone, you can set a timer for it. So it's, it's actually pretty cool. I automate mine. Yeah, go into your settings. I automate mine for do not disturb at 9.30 or so and to end at 12. That way now, I don't forget. 
I'll never forget, it was a Sunday service or a Wednesday night service when I was planting a church and my precious guitar was in the shop and they were going to call me to let me know when it was finished and I didn't want to miss this call. And for some reason my phone rang right while I was teaching and I answered it. I know, I'm like, what did I just do? I can't believe I just answered the phone while I'm teaching this Bible study. Sorry, guys. Hang on a second. God didn't kill me. God's merciful. But boy, that was not a great example, was it? Um, Speaking of examples, how many of you know that Chloe and Nick are getting married? Yeah. A lot of you, a lot of you do know that Chloe and Nick are getting married. How many of you gotten, have gotten a save the date? Don't raise your hands. Because not everyone in the church has gotten a save the date. Now, I'd like to say that I love you all equally. And, and I love you as your pastor. But I don't make enough money to invite the entire church and our side of the family to join us at the wedding. So, please, if you have not yet received, if you have not received a a save the date, stop nagging Chloe. So, uh, I have to do this every now and then when someone's pregnant. People are walking up to them, rubbing their bellies without their permission. It's almost like when a woman is pregnant, she got a big sign, no longer personal property. Rub my belly. That's not, there's no sign. There's no sign on a woman that says rub my belly. Uh, And if you rub the belly of a woman who appears to be pregnant (laughs) and is not pregnant, I'd do funerals, <laughs> okay? So, you know, as kindly as I can say, whether I've done this for other young couples, um, it's hard to whittle down your invitation list. And in some cases, Chloe's just not particularly close to some people, and other people she's very close to. Uh, and so this is a day for her, and... Nick to come together, and so if you didn't receive one, please don't take offense at that, Um, but you're not invited. Just, I love you, but uh, Chloe doesn't love you as much as I do. Just kidding. (laughs) Uh, So please, again, take that in the spirit that is given, and when they do tie the knot, October, whatever the day is, 14th, is it? Okay. Did I get a save the date? Uh, I, I, I designed the save the dates, so I, I, did, I did get one. Uh, when, when they, when they are, are wedded, right, and they come back to church after their honeymoon, and we all say, woo, yes, congratulations, don't ask them when they're having a baby. That is incredibly obnoxious. I had a young woman in our church, she couldn't have children. Her and her husband couldn't have children. They got married, and boy, people were hammering them. When are you having a baby? When are you having a baby? When are you having a baby? And they didn't want to say that we're trying, but there's not a whole lot of success happening. It's embarrassing to them. And so after a while, it became very hurtful. Because they tried for years and years and years, uh, and were just hurt. And people weren't getting the hint, so I had to come up to the pulpit and say, could you please stop asking Amanda and Tim when they're having a baby? Dude, just leave them alone. So, I say that uh, in love, one, we just can't afford to bring everybody to the Castleton and, and, and the wedding is at the Castleton. All right, whose phone is ringing now? Angel, your job from now on, you're going to host a technical support in the lobby as, as people are coming out. 
that they can come to you and say, could you show me how to silence my phone before I leave? If you weren't a worship leader, I'd have to have you out there before the service as people are coming in with a sign that says, this is how you silence your phone. Okay. And I'm not judging because I answered mine. Why don't we pray? I um, just want to make sure that, that I honor my daughter and her and her fiancé. It's hard to be asked that question when you know that you're not inviting that person. Um, and it's really difficult. My, my children, they rarely complain about being pastor's kids. But there is a burden being a pastor's kid. Everyone feels like they own a little bit of you, right? Uh, and all of you have invested in my kids, and I, I love you for it, and I thank you for that, and you have supported my children. Um, but there is a pressure there. They can never walk on the property and just be Chloe and Nate. And they know that. I mean, I think they can. And I think our church has been very good to them. But in their mind, they know who they are. Right? So let's be gentle and kind and consider that. Lord, I thank you for gathering us together this morning. I pray that as we begin this message now, you would... um, Calm our hearts, prepare our hearts to receive this incredibly necessary and important sermon. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. This is on the Bible app. If you have the Uversion Bible app, click your menu, click events, click a manual. Don't click the other churches because you won't have the same sermon. So For even if I grieved you with a letter, I don't regret it. And if I regretted it, since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet only for a while. This is the Apostle Paul. His first letter to the Corinthians corrected sin in the church. Right? We're talking about repentance and restoration. There was someone in the church, and they were celebrating sin. We're going to talk a little bit about the temple of Aphrodite today. They were celebrating sexual sin in their church in a very real sense. Uh, They were not dealing with it. It was out in the open And it was almost as if they were a welcoming and affirming congregation. Listen, you need to be a welcoming congregation to any and all. But we don't affirm sin, right? We don't affirm it because it's destructive to the people. And it's it's, at odds with the character and nature of your creator. Okay? It's a perversion of what God has given to humanity. And so he wrote this letter and he found out in this letter that they were... Dude, they were messed up. When they got this letter from Paul, this is Paul the apostle, okay? Uh, And there were some false teachers in that church, and basically he called them out on the carpet. You think you're an apostle? Basically, he said, let's get into the squared circle. I'm going to show you who the apostle is, all right? He's like, "You you better respond appropriately to this letter because you don't want me showing up in person with this unsolved, right? I'm paraphrasing. This is what Paul is essentially telling this church. Some of you false teachers are saying, oh, he's really bold in what he's writing, but in person he's a weakling. He's like, oh yeah, you want to see it? You, you want to see me in person? Uh, I remember there was a time where we had a person in our sound room. It was in the old building. It was a long, long time ago, and the pastor here had certain quirks, and one of his quirks was he didn't want the, he didn't want the um, bass really loud on background tracks, right? He just didn't want that thumping bass. That was his prerogative, and, and I was in the sound booth, and and the guy running the sound was, was keeping that turned up. And I, I said, well, you know that pastor doesn't want that, that thump and bass. It's just not, he's, he's just that, he doesn't want it. It's his prerogative. He's leading the church. And uh, he said, I don't care what he wants. This is how it should be. And I'm like, um, excuse me? So I reached over to turn the bass down. And he said, uh, you touch that dial, I'm going to punch you in the head. I know we're in a church. <laughs> he was in my choir. He was the best tenor I had. And he quit after that moment because I said, oh, go ahead. You can punch me. But it won't go well for you because the angel of the Lord is with me. And that was the end of that. Paul is basically saying, okay, you want to say I'm big in my letters? You do not want to see me in person because it wasn't Paul they should fear. It was, the, it was the person that powered Paul. It was God. It was the angels that surrounded him. And there are angels here, by the way. 
there are angels in this place, as there are demons. And so we need to be careful. We need to hear what the Word of God is saying and not be distracted. So he goes on, I now rejoice, although I I was grieved to hear that you were so devastated. Uh, That's my paraphrase. But because your grief led to repentance, for you were grieved as God willed, so that you didn't experience any loss from us, for godly grief produces repentance, at least a salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, godly grief, consider what is produced in you, right? Uh, what desire to clear yourselves of that sin. What desire to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what deep longing, what zeal, what justice. In every way you showed yourselves to be pure in this matter. So we talked about repentance and restoration, and we're going to talk this morning about worldly sorrow versus godly grief. Worldly sorrow versus godly grief. There's some powerful things to, uh, to observe from this passage, and, and I mentioned it earlier that contextually this church is grieving over sin that they had allowed to be propagated in their church and they weren't dealing with, and, and I think in a sense they were celebrating because they were in a very hyper-sexualized society. Right? They, were, they, were in, uh, they were in Corinth, in the, in the temple to the goddess of Aphrodite was in Corinth. Uh, and they had, uh, history teaches us that they had a thousand temple prostitutes. Right? And, and what, they may not have all been in the temple, but they were in, in, uh, in these housing spaces around and behind the temple where men would go in and use them. It's part of their worship. It's disgusting. But that was, that was the society they were in. In fact, many of those prostitutes were given as sacrifices to that temple from the wealthy around them who owned these women, who owned these girls, and brought them to the temple and said, here, receive my sacrifice of this, of this woman, of this girl. And they would take that girl into slavery and she would become a temple prostitute used by men to worship their God. Same thing's going on today. So oh, it's not going on. It's going on today. Sex trafficking is rampant. They found a little 11-year-old, I think she was 11, 10 or 11, in, uh, in, in I think it was Texas, a border state. A little Spanish girl, a little Mexican girl. She had been raped by five different men, they found five different samples of DNA in this little girl. Yeah, it's horrible. This was the environment that this church was living in, though. It was a permissible environment. Sex was pleasure. Sex wasn't something that connects and transcends in a marriage relationship. It was just pleasure. It was a trite little thing. So here we are in this environment, and of course, in, in this church, they'd allow sexual sin. Sometimes churches take their standards from the world, and when the standards of the world drift further and further and further and further away from the Creator, some churches tend to drift with it, instead of holding to the standard of the Word of the living God, because the Word of the living God is counter to culture in most places. So this was the town they were in. It's about a town of 4,000 people. And this town was known for immorality. I mean, this was, uh, this was the place to go. This was Las Vegas. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. I mean, this was a filthy, filthy, filthy place. What a great place to start a church. And I mean it. So here we had a very personal thing in this church. And God teaches us there's a vast difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. So the first difference I want to remark on is that worldly sorrow has no hope. Worldly sorrow gives no hope. Worldly sorrow is depression. Worldly sorrow is empty. There's no hope in worldly sorrow, but godly grief points to the hope, right? Worldly sorrow has no hope, but godly grief points to the hope of Jesus Christ. 
There's hope at the end of repentance of restoration. Worldly sorrow drives us away from God. You've fallen into sin, and you're sorry for your sin, but you're sinking into this morose, into this worldly sorrow, and you're beating yourself up, and you're, you're punishing yourself. But, but that's worldly sorrow, right? It draws us away from God, but godly grief draws us near. Godly grief recognizes that that cross where Jesus died, the blood that Jesus shed, has, is powerful enough to, to completely cleanse us from all our sin. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes a sinner white as snow. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. But with the shedding of Jesus' blood, if you come to Jesus for the salvation of your eternal soul, recognizing that he is God in the flesh, that he died on the cross and in his body were your sins personally, he took your place, he took your punishment, and then he rose from the grave three days later. If you believe that and you call out to God, oh God, in the name of Jesus Christ, I ask you to forgive my sin, to, to cleanse me and to make me a new creation and make me your child. Man, God promises that whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, Christian, if you've done that, you need to be cleansed daily, not for your salvation, but for your relation for your fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. You don't have to wallow in your sin. We have hope. We have the cross. It draws us near if we will have godly grief, a recognition of what we've done wrong and a, and a mourning of, over our sin. But that draws us to the one that can relieve us of our sin and cleanse us and give us a new walk and a new life. Worldly, worldly sorrow causes loss. In some cases, worldly sorrow causes loss of life. Suicide among teenagers, kids. The mental health in this country is, is abysmal in some cases because folks are caught up in worldly sorrow. They hate themselves. They hate themselves for what they've done. They hate themselves for what was done to them. Worldly sorrow causes loss, loss of relationships, loss of income, loss of job, loss of life, loss of joy, but godly sorrow, godly grief leads us to joy. Godly grief takes those wrongs and brings them to the foot of the cross and believes in what Jesus has accomplished for us. It, it believes it. And as we bring our sin to the foot of the cross and the blood of Jesus pours over that sin, you ought to mark it paid in full. Paid in full. Never to be judged again. This is what godly grief does for us. It leads to joy. Worldly sorrow drives us down. I'm talking from experience. How many of you have failed and fallen into sin and not sincerely confessed it immediately or within that day? What happens the next day? You start walking around like this. And then you try to fake it. The day after that, and the day after that, you try to fake it. Everything's all right. I have joy unspeakable and, unspeakable and full of glory, can't you tell? But you're walking around like this. Your heart is heavy. And that is worldly sorrow. That's not godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow drives you down. Godly sorrow lifts us up. Godly sorrow, the Bible says, we are edified, we are lifted up from, the psalmist says, from the miry clay. We are pulled out of that quicksand and that filth of sin and we are set upon the rock of Jesus Christ. And we are cleansed. He builds us up, he reminds us of who we are. Worldly sorrow wallows in self-pity. I was talking to somebody, I think, last week or the week before. And uh, I think I told you this. I, I reminded them gently that they were having a pity party. And I know they were because I, I'm pretty much the king of it. This was very recognizable. It's not good. Worldly sorrow 
wallows in self-pity and you sin and, and sometimes you feel like you have to punish yourself for what you did wrong and you just stay in it and you stay in it and stay in it and stay down and stay beaten until you feel like, oh, okay, I've suffered enough and now I'm going to finally come to Jesus. And folks, Jesus suffered for you. Now, go and sin no more. This isn't a license for sin, but he suffered for you. And you suffering in that way belittles the sacrifice that Jesus made for you. It doesn't just belittle his sacrifice. It seals your joy. It warps your understanding of God and Christ and the Father. And for the people that are around you, where is your testimony? When there's no joy of the Lord in your heart, people are missing one of the most important witnessing tools that has ever been made. The joy of the Christian should be incomprehensible to the lost. Do you have that kind of joy? Usually because we're caught in worldly sorrow and we're wallowing in self-pity. But godly grief, oh listen man, godly grief restores self-worth. It restores our sense of who we are, right? Godly grief reminds us, and I'm going to keep saying this, that you are the joy of Jesus. You are the joy of Jesus. He endured the cross despising the shame For what? For the joy that was set before him, the redemption of the lost, the salvation of the sinner, the joy that was set before him, you and I coming to him for forgiveness and for cleansing, for that joy that was set before him. He stayed on the cross and he endured it and he was looking at all of us. You are the joy of Jesus. Godly grief restores our self-worth. We recognize I am a child of the king. We just had a a, a men's breakfast yesterday and a devotional time and a prayer time. And then we went out to to Belmont Hall and hung out there for however long. And and after that, I ended up hanging out with a a person after that, I don't know, for an hour or so. Just fellowshipping and guiding and and doing what believers should do. And uh, one of the things that we were talking about is I am a man of God. And who I am and my identity Listen, godly grief restores your identity. Worldly sorrow tears us apart. We walk around wounded, hurting, pounding ourselves to death, but godly grief builds us up. Worldly sorrow leads to more and more regret. Think about that. You've fallen into sin. You're beating yourself to death over it. You're living in shame. You're living in pity. Oh, you know what you did was wrong, and you say a cursory prayer, Lord, please forgive me for this sin, but your prayer doesn't have any power behind it because you're not entirely sure he will, and you're certainly sure you don't deserve it, and you're wondering if you're going to do it again. I mean, you don't want to do it again, but you're wondering if you are, and then you get caught up in this shame and this guilt, and, and, and listen, it, 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 can, it can drive you back to the very sin that has made you shamed. Has a way of drawing us back to the thing that hurt us. Besetting sin is a dangerous thing. It becomes a comfort sin. Something that we know. And we begin to feel the stress and we begin to feel this this grief and, and the shame. Why not? And we fall and we fail instead of availing ourselves of our Savior Jesus. Listen, godly sorrow <laughs> leads to more and more regret, but godly grief is without regret. You are never going to regret coming to Jesus for forgiveness, for your salvation. You're not going to regret it. He's not going to look at you and say, oh, you again? Really? Come on. He's not going to say that. He's going to say, come on, bring it in, bring it in. How many of you have someone who loves you unconditionally? You don't have to raise your hand. I just want you to think about this. Someone loves you unconditionally. I mean, you blow it and you know that that person, even if they know you've blown it, are going to hug you and love you and they're not going to be condemning. Do you have a person like that in your life? Because if you don't, you need someone like that. You need someone that knows all your crap. 
and loves you anyways. But you already have someone, and his name is Jesus, and he loves you anyway. Listen, man, worldly sorrow leads to regret, but godly grief is without regret, and worldly sorrow produces finally, and I mentioned it earlier, death. Death of relationships. Death of your witness. Jesus said, if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is good for nothing but to be trodden under the feet of men, the witness of a believer. Worldly sorrow leads to death. Sometimes literal death. It leads to physical ailments. It can lead to all sorts of horrible things. But godly sorrow, godly grief, leads to life everlasting leads to life now and leads to life for others as they watch us and receive our witness. So godly grief doesn't cause us to lose anything. Did you read that passage with me? He explains that. Worldly sorrow causes loss, but godly grief adds to your life. It produces things in you. The idea of loss implies value. When you grieve in a godly way over sin, you lose a negative, which is a positive. You gain a net positive. You, you, you can't lose something that is already harming you. When you lose that, it's a gain. Some of us are afraid to lose some of these sins and these struggles that we've had. What would life look like without this? I don't even know who I am. I tell you, man, life is going to look so much better to you without it. Believe it. Believe it. God can fill those spaces that you have been filling with someone and something else. Godly grief produces, it creates, it adds to your life change, joy, a walk with God, guidance, security. Oh my word. It's, it's an amazing thing. We saw that at the end of the passage. Now I want to take you to James chapter 4. Some of you are still struggling with this idea of, of, of drawing near to God. Like I failed too much. I've fallen too, too many times. And listen to what James teaches us. And James was a hardcore disciple of Jesus. James was the brother of Jesus. Didn't seem to come to Christ as his savior until after Jesus died and rose again because Brothers don't respect brothers like that. You kidding me? You think you're perfect, Jesus? Like, you ain't that good. But eventually, James got it. And he believed on Jesus as his Savior. And then when he wrote this letter to the churches, you can actually see the impression of Jesus on him in his writing and how he presents material. But he was hardcore, man. He calling you out. You say you have faith, but you don't have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Faith without works is dead being alone. I mean, James is like, all right, you say you're a Christian, prove it. <laughs> James, James didn't pull any punches. Here he says, draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Remember when I talked about being out of alignment with God's will in our life as sin? Do you all remember I said that in the beginning? Was I making that up? Was that some, oh, Pastor Dave, she's still wise. It's, still one, it's literally in the word of God, double-minded. Get rid of your double-mindedness. Get rid of your will. Be, be, be submitted to, to his will. He goes on and he says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's similar to the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. You got sin in your life, you got sin in the camp, you got sin in the church. Man, you need to mourn over that sin. You need to have godly grief over that sin. It leads to repentance. It leads to restoration. Stop pretending that sin is no big deal. It killed our Savior. It's killing some of you. It's killing people all across this country, both physically and spiritually. And there is a hell that is yawning for those who don't know Christ. And that is why we're still here on earth. It's to snatch them out of the jaws of death and bring them to the hand of our Savior. Hell is real. Church, do you understand that? 
Do you live in ignorance of that? Hell is a reality. And without Jesus, the Bible says we are all condemned before we came to Christ. All of us. So when we make light of sin and we don't deal with it, it's, it, well, it destroys us. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. He will, he will lift you up. He will, he will restore the joy of your salvation. But you've got to come to Him. You've got to draw near to Him. You've got to show Him your sin. You don't want to hold back. And you've got to believe that He wants to forgive you. You have to believe that you are the joy of Jesus when you come to Him for a cleansing. Turn with me into Hebrews chapter 4. I want to drive this point home. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet he was able to do it and survive it without sin. Therefore, let us approach, let us draw near the throne of grace with boldness, with confidence, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need, in time of need. What is mercy for? What do you think mercy is for? Why does he say that you may find, may receive mercy and find grace? Is there a difference between mercy and grace? It would appear so. It would appear so. Do you know what mercy is for? The Bible says God's mercy is never ending. It's just this pool that you cannot get to the bottom of. I mean, it is deeper than any sin you could commit. And so when we have sinned, and we have failed, and we have godly grief that is driving us to Jesus. And that's how you can know the difference, right? Worldly sorrow pulls us away. Godly grief drives us in, draws us near, okay? If you are sorry for your sin in your life, I, I applaud that. But if that sorrow is not drawing you to Jesus, it's driving you away, you don't have godly grief, you have worldly sorrow, Flip that switch and run to Jesus. So here we see, we can, we can come to the throne of grace to receive mercy. Mercy is for when we have failed, when we have sinned intentionally and unintentionally. We come to the throne of grace because of the blood of Jesus Christ, and we come through him, and we are welcomed into the throne room of God on high, and he will pour mercy into you without reserve. I mean, he's not just going to give you a little bit of mercy. He is going to pour it all over you, abundantly. He's going to cover you, scrub you, clean you up. That's what mercy is for. I thank God for mercy. And then he says that we may, receive, may find grace to help in time of need. Mercy cleanses us, provides us with forgiveness. It is the forgiveness of God. Grace is someone else's strength. In the presence of our weakness. That's what grace is. I did an illustration and somebody got really angry for me, with me for it. I have a handicapped daughter. She's 30 now. I don't think I would try this anymore. But she used to love to walk. She could never walk. But if you grab her under the arms, dude, she could run. She could walk and, and uh, she loved to do that so much when she was about two years old all she wanted to do was walk around the house one night. We couldn't figure it out. She was crying, throwing a fit. It was horrible. Remember that, babe? Like, she just would not stop. We'd give her pinky. Doesn't want the pinky. We'd give her a bottle. Give her something to eat. No, doesn't want that. And we're like, what is happening here? Didn't want to be in her walker. So I, I, I just grabbed her by the arms like I used to do and start walking her around, and then she shut up. Well, that's obnoxious. My, I think that's why I have lower back issues today. Now, think about it, Trish, like just doing this. And then she was happy. She was happy. And when I stopped, she wasn't happy. 
So I, I brought Kirsten up front here to help the church understand what grace is. And I looked at, and she was, listen, Kirsten is an attention hound. She's a ham. She loved it. She wanted to be up here. Uh, she was all in. Anytime she'd get people to look at her and laugh, if I made a mistake in the pulpit and she recognized it, she'd be laughing her head off until she felt like stopping. And then everybody else is laughing. That's how Kirsten was. So, so I um, brought her up here and I said, Kirsten, can you walk? Nope. I said, Church, can she walk? Nope. Get her out of her wheelchair, stand her up, and I started walking her across the stage. Are you sure she can't walk? Because she's walking now. She's walking now. That's grace. The presence of someone else's strength in your weakness. Now, if I let go of Kirsten, no more Kirsten. She'd go like this. Boom. Matter of fact, she was in a walker one day after physical therapy, running across the parking lot, got away from me. She was like from me to the, the light there, and, and, and she's laughing, and oh, she you want daddy to chase her, and there's no cars around. I'm not a complete idiot, just dumb enough to let her run across a parking lot that has pebbles in a, wheel, in a, in a, in a walker. And so she hit a pebble, and that thing goes, boom! And Kirsten doesn't have the ability to put her hands up because of her cerebral palsy. She can't go like this. She'll go like this. And that's what she did. I heard this crack. And I'm like, <gasps> I was pretty young. I was probably like 23. I go to pick her up. I get her out of the walker. I put her head on my shoulder. I'm like, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. You're fine. You're fine, Kirsten. Come on now. It's all right. Rub some dirt in it. Suck it up. I pull her head away from my shoulder. And I watch the bump go like this. And his bleeding. And she bled on my favorite sweatshirt. And I'm just like, it's okay, Kirsten. It's okay. It's okay, Eric. It's okay. It's okay, Eric. And I go back into the physical therapist's office. I'm like, uh, do you think I should bring her over to the ER? And they're like, yes. Yes, you should. I'm like, okay. Dude, that's scary, man. She couldn't walk. She, had no, she, she doesn't have her own strength. But when someone else would come alongside her and lift her out of that wheelchair, lift her out of that walker, my father-in-law used to do this with her all the time. He didn't hurt his back because he's a very short man, right, Ken? We all know you're vertically challenged. And so for him to walk her, he could stand upright. Like, I don't know, was he 5'1 or something? And uh, he's watching online, so he would just walk her like this. Um. That's grace. So when you go to the throne of God, you receive mercy, forgiveness of your sin, a cleansing. And then you can you find grace to help you in your weakness. That is grace. And we should go to the throne every day for it. So as I round this out, that's why I didn't go through this last week. We need to draw near. Good golly, Lord. I'm going to end here. Yes, you are. And we'll continue this next week. There's more to come. It's such a beautiful, beautiful thing when we get, when we, when we grasp repentance and restoration. When we draw near. Uh, I talked about this briefly, right? That we must, we must break through. We must break through ourselves. We must break through our hang-ups. You can come forward, guys. We must break through our resistance to come into the presence of Jesus. We must take hold of the hope that is offered to us in Christ. This is so important when we're dealing with stubborn sins in our lives that we come to Jesus and trust that he is there waiting for us with an unconditional love. This is, this is how you achieve a life without regret. A salvation of fellowship and effectiveness and joy. We've got to break through our own shame. We've got to break through our own desire for punishment. We've got to break through our own guilt and come into the presence of Jesus and allow ourselves to enjoy Jesus. 
You say, yeah, but I've blown it again. I've, I've failed. I, 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 I. Jesus wants you. He wants you. How do you know? How do you know Jesus wants you? What's on the wall behind me? This giant cross. Jesus died on the cross for you personally. Personally. And he loves each and every one of you. And if you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior yet, let me just say, you're not only missing out on heaven, which is going to be flipping awesome, you're missing out on joy here and now. I mean, you're missing out on joy in the midst of sorrow. You're missing out on joy in tremendous trials. You're missing out on that presence of Christ and his holy angels around you. I have angels with me. God says that he gives angels charge over us. I've got two. I call them my angel dudes. They hang with me. They fight some spiritual battles that I'm not aware of. But even more important than my angel dudes, I have Jesus. I have Jesus. And if you don't have him yet, today's your day. James, the, the brother of Jesus, said, Behold, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. Don't, don't put it off. If you recognize in your heart that you are indeed a sinner by birth and by choice, and you have never come to Jesus in complete faith and trust and desire to be changed, well, you need Jesus. Church doesn't do it. Church isn't enough. Church points to Jesus. That's what church does. Church loves itself well, but, but for salvation, you need Jesus. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. The name of Jesus. And it's not about you being better and doing better and joining the church and giving all your money. It's, it, it, it's, it's not about that. It's about Jesus. There's a song we sing, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. We come to Jesus. He pays for our sin. He bought and paid for all the wrong that we have ever done and ever will do. Can you imagine holding on to that now? I couldn't possibly bring this to Jesus. I'm so ashamed of it. Well, Jesus is like, dude, that's mine. I bought and paid for it. You need to let that go. It belongs to me now. Christian, you get that? You're holding on to something that you don't own anymore. You failed. You fell. Bring it to Jesus. He already paid the price for it. It belongs to him. And if you haven't trusted in Jesus yet, why not? What are you waiting for? You need Jesus. It doesn't make you a member of this church. It makes you a member of the family of God. Hey, all thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to know more, please go to our website, emmanuelhooksit.com, where you'll find helpful links and resources and where you can contact us directly. That web address again is emmanuelhooksit.com. Bless God, get out there, and be the blessing.